Amen. Good morning. Good to see you, Grace Point. God bless you. I want to say first thankful to Pastor Junior Dees who preached last Sunday in my absence, and he did an awesome job encouraging us to look for those God moments, didn't he? How many enjoyed him? Amen. God bless you. Really great. We were over preaching in Thomasville for Apostle Benny Calloway at his church anniversary. He pastors New Jerusalem Missionary Baptist in Thomasville, so we had a great time uh, ministering there. And, uh, we, of course, Benny is part of this church family and part of this congregation, and we love and appreciate Pastor Calloway. Um, I'm going to let you be seated just a moment. I want to recognize something before I get into the message today, and uh, that is that this month is the 20th uh, year of uh, anniversary, I guess we could call it, of our food ministry. And uh, this ministry has been going for 20 years this month, and it began in November of 1999 with Tom and Denise McGow, and uh, we're just so appreciative, uh, and it's continued unbroken for all those uh, 20 years, and in fact, Denise uh, insisted prayer be part of that ministry, and that's still a major part of the food ministry today is prayer, and many of the people that come to receive food uh, reach out and ask for prayer. So we're not forcing prayer on them to, uh, to, you know, to give them food, but they come expecting prayer and needing prayer and wanting prayer. And so uh, we just wanted to acknowledge, uh, to, to me it's a tremendous anniversary. And uh, this, this church today serves over 400 families a month. That represents 2,000 individuals a, a month that are receiving food uh, because of this ministry and because of your giving. And, uh, and I pray that this, you know, God would move on some people not only to, to give to it, but to volunteer to, to work in it. Every Tuesday afternoon uh, from 2, we start Charles at 2, to 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And uh, they're here at 2, I'm <laughs> But from 3 to 6, uh, and the food ministry goes on back here, what we would call behind our, our campus, behind our facility, coming out of the, uh, uh, just a whole setup there for individuals to be ministered to and prayed for. And one thing, when I became pastor here, I told them, you know, we would never capitalize off of that ministry. In other words, taking people's picture without authorization or doing those type things because they're coming out of need. And we're not using them for, uh, you know, advertising you know, uh, things like that. But uh, this church has given away over 2 million pounds uh, of food uh, in these past 20 years. And so it's just an awesome, awesome ministry. And uh, in, in 2009, uh, I was already here uh, at this church, and uh, Tom and Denise had moved out of state, and we love and appreciate them, but we didn't have anybody uh, to take the, the food ministry. And Brother Charles Grimes came. He was already uh, volunteering with them anyway in that and, and had the experience where he used to live in the food ministry. And, Charles, we wanted to recognize you and the food ministry this morning. If you'd come up and just present this to you on behalf of the food ministry. And uh, we love you, Charles. It just says uh, Grace Point. <laughs> it just says uh, Grace Point. 
uh, church food ministry, 20 years of service. And then we've got you, Charles Grimes, 2009 to 2019. Charles, we love and appreciate what you do. Okay, I said, you want to say anything? He said, no. <laughs> Amen. Well, we appreciate him, appreciate his wife and family sharing him with us all those hours that he uh, serves back there and just what a great, great heart he has. And his, he has just as much heart not only to feed the people, but I think he has more of a heart to pray and minister to them in the spiritual way. And so, Charles, we love you. We appreciate what you do. And I tell you, Katrina Fletcher, she is such an integral part of that ministry back there and has such a heart. We love her and Andy, uh, but Katrina does so much back there. She's Charles's right-hand woman, praise God, in, uh, in that ministry. If you'll stand with me, please, and uh, let's get into the Word of God this morning. I, uh, I want to just talk about the word forgiveness. I know I mentioned that. Uh, fairly often around here. That's because of how important it is. Uh, before I read this, any scriptures or anything, let me just ask you this. Of course, how many knows that, that summer is gone now? You can feel it lately, right? And uh, I don't think we're officially in winter anyway uh, yet, but uh, it sure feels like it. But how many of you took a trip this summer? You took some type of trip, road trip. How many of you took a trip this summer? How many of you took a car trip this summer? Car trip. That was a lot of fun, right? Car trip. How many took a, anybody take a plane trip? A trip? By, oh, yeah, a lot of you. Anybody take a guilt trip this summer? Anybody guilt, guilt trip? Those are not near as fun. And uh, I want to talk to you about that. Uh, I'm talking to you about forgiveness, but really I'm talking to you about the remedy, the cure, God's cure for guilt. Now, guilt, man, is something really nasty. It's something that every one of us have felt maybe our feeling uh it's it's an emotional experience i looked it up you know to see what the official definition it says it's a cognitive and an emotional experience that occurs when a person uh believes or realizes that they have compromised their own standard or the society's standard of conduct and morality and uh and therefore they bear the, the, the significant responsibility of that violation and uh, that's kind of a complicated to me sounding definition. But guilt is so damaging in our lives. And uh, I believe it's one of the, uh, I believe it really, I believe it's the number one thing that most Christians uh, deal with is guilt. And I'll explain that in a moment. But guilt is so damaging because it creates fear. It, it creates fear. And uh, I remember reading uh, th this thing about Sir Arthur. Dole, he's the guy that wrote the uh, Sherlock Holmes novels. And so you may not remember his name, but you sure heard of those Sherlock Holmes and those novels. And I remember reading how he, uh, during his life, uh, he was living in England, and, and he, he played a prank on, on 15 very famous people in England, and he simply uh, sent uh, a note. He sent this note, and the note said, all is found out flee at once and it was anonymous of course he didn't sign it you know he just sent 15 very famous people in England that note within 48 hours 10 of the 15 had left the country and he just did it as a prank but that shows you the power 
of fear, that I'm going to be found out, that somebody's going to find out. And, uh, and if they do find out, they'll reject me. Uh, if they really knew, you know, if this person really knew, if they, you know, the, uh, my spouse even really knew, or this, if they really knew everything about me, they wouldn't, they wouldn't like me, they wouldn't accept me, they would reject me. And we fear uh, that we'd be retaliated against for what we've done. And most of all, we fear that God is going to judge us. An, an impending cloud of doom is over a lot of people because they fear uh, God's judgment. And so I want to talk to you today about that and about the word forgiveness and about what the Bible says in the New Testament about forgiveness. So, Father, we, we just give you praise and honor and glory for your word that is so precious to us. And we pray today that you would cause the power of your spirit, your revelation, your illumination to cause us to see what forgiveness really is and who accomplished it for us. And we pray today that every person that listens to this today would be delivered, no more excuses to walk in the condemnation and the guilt and fear. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Shake somebody's hand. Tell a man you're looking good this morning. You know, every every week almost now, I'm just uh, someone will will send a message or whatever, and 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 uh, you know, for the most part, I've enjoyed being on social media. Uh, you know, I didn't mess with it until uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I remember when I first went on, I didn't tell my grown kids, and and uh, one of my kids wrote and said, "Well, hell, I must have froze over because Daddy's just on." I thought I saw him on Facebook. Uh, but for the most part, for the most part, I've uh, enjoyed being there. There's been uh, other things that go along with it that's not so fun. And especially my focus and goal on Facebook and those media, social media, is to get the gospel out, to get the good news of Jesus. And so, so many times people are writing and they'll say, uh, you know, I, I watch you every week on Facebook. And, man, we appreciate that. We, you know, we're, we're glad that we know that we're doing something that's ministering to you. Uh, it'd be cool if you'd let us know that, if you'd just let us know, hey, I'm watching it, and, and I know this morning I had people this week uh, message me from Texas and said, you know, we watch it every, every week, and, and, and it's such a blessing to us, and, and, uh, and, and really they were frustrated because they can't find a church that ministers the grace of God, and they said they go to church, and they sit there, and, and they just go, no, I don't agree with that, I mean, you know, and, and it's just because in most places, I'm not trying to be an elitist or anything or an imperialist, I'm just simply saying most places have a mixture of law and grace just being delivered to the people. And, uh, and you know, we talk about guilt, and yet the preachers are the ones that's making you feel guilty. And, and then all counseling, man, I've been doing this for a long time, okay? And pastoring for over 25 years now, I'm preaching for over 34 years, and most all counseling, I can promise you, is guilt-based. It, it has a guilt uh, uh, at the base of it. Now you got to you got to understand this. I said this, that I believe that guilt is the number one weapon that the enemy uses against the believer, and the reason I say that is because listen to what the Bible says. Um, it, it 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 calls Satan the accuser of the what the brethren. Now notice he's not called the accuser of the sinner. No, he is the accuser of the Christian of the brethren. 
And uh, uh, what does he use as his weapon? In other words, what does he use to accuse a believer with? He uses the law. He uses the law. He points out to you where you have missed the mark, where you have sinned, where you have fallen short of the law of God, God's requirements, God's standard. And so this is what he uses. There's no different. I mean, we've got a video of it, so to speak, in John chapter 8, where you see the woman caught in the very act of adultery. She is brought to Jesus, and all these folks are standing there with what? With stones in their hand. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, 8, and 9, he called the law the ministry of death. He said it's written and engraved on what? On stones. And, and, and then he says if the ministry of condemnation, so he calls it not only a ministry of death, but he calls, it a, he calls it a ministry of condemnation. He said if that ministry had any glory there, is what he's saying, then the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And, and what, he, what, he, what he's declaring to us is just like they brought that woman and they threw her at the feet of Jesus, what did they use to accuse the woman with? They pointed to what? To the law. They said the law says that we should stone her to death. What say ye, Jesus? Now let me say this to you so you understand Jesus, the only person who could condemn a person in the New Testament times to death for violating the law was the high priest. Well, Jesus was not even a low priest. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he was not in the priesthood. He was born of the wrong tribe. You couldn't be a priest in the New Testament unless you were born of the tribe of Levi. Now, what tribe was Jesus born of? The tribe of Judah. So he was not even in the running for being a priest. Do you see how that God is is really just declaring and yelling at us that this is a totally different priesthood. How many knows that Jesus is the high priest? He is a priest, but he's not the priest in the Levitical priesthood that administers the law. He's the priest of Melchizedek. He is a totally different priesthood. It is an eternal priesthood, a never-ending priesthood, and Jesus is the mediator of that priesthood. He is our high priest. Amen. And so they, they, but they bring her to Jesus. So in other words, they really were not wanting to, you know, their, their focus at this moment, at least was not to have the woman stoned to death because if they wanted to do that, they would have carried her to the high priest because there was one on the throne. Okay. Of the high, of the priesthood, they could have carried her there, but no, they chose to bring her to Jesus. Why? Because they knew he was preaching grace. As far as he preached law to those that needed the law, but to those that, that were outside the commonwealth, outside that relationship, he was declaring and moved in grace towards them. So they bring her, you know, to, to, to Jesus. And you've heard me tell the story uh, many times. It's a wonderful picture. And so they're standing there with stones to stone them. And Jesus said, you know, you without sin cast the first stone. And then it says, uh, beginning with the oldest, I always found that interesting. And beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop the stones one by one and leave the, you know, leave the place. Now, the, if you look in verse 1 of John 8, it says clearly that Jesus was teaching in the temple. Everybody say, in the temple. Okay, so just get it straight. In the temple in Jerusalem, we're talking about Herod's temple. Uh, tremendous. Uh, one of the wonders of the world at that time. So let me just say this. No dirt floors, Right? No dirt floors, and that's kind of, I guess, maybe a pet peeve of mine. But you hear all these preachers and everybody preaching about Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground and you're writing in the dirt. No such thing. He's not on dirt. He's on marble floors. He's in an immaculate temple. And so there's no dirt anywhere to be writing on. But Jesus stooped down and took his finger and, and he wrote. 
and what his finger is touching is stone. And, 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 and in, in his way, he is saying, you without sin cast the first stone. And then he turns around and puts his finger. Now, who took his finger and wrote on stone? God did. So Jesus is like saying, how dare you try to tell me about the law? I'm the one that wrote the law. Because when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And God took his own finger and wrote, so Jesus is there with stone. Let me tell you something. Those Jews got the message real quick. Real quick. They, got, they, they were reminded real quick. And so and Jesus brought that law to his standard, to God's standard. See, what the law would do, the, the law, you know, the law is kind of like a mirror. You can point out the, the faults, but it can't fix them. The mirror doesn't fix you. You look in there and go, well, let's see how much work I got to do today <laughs> to get presentable, to go out, you know. Um, and, and, but it can't, the mirror itself can't fix you. It can point out, it can help you see what needs to be done, but it can't do it. That's what the law does. And, and the, law, the, the law doesn't make you feel better about your sin. It actually makes you feel worse. Because when Jesus first came and he preached, they thought, well, as long as I don't actually get into bed with somebody and commit adultery, I have not committed adultery. So they judge themselves as I'm pretty good or I'm better than that guy. I'm better than that girl. I'm better than that person. No, no, Jesus said if you've ever looked at anybody and lusted, you're an adulterer. So that made everybody an adulterer. See how quiet y'all got? That's how quiet it was when he said that too. <laughs> they said, well, I'm not, at least I'm not, I ain't never killed nobody. I'm not a murderer. And so, cause they, you know, if they hadn't literally killed someone, they'd go, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm better than that guy. Jesus said, if you ever hated anybody, you're a murderer. So, man, he ramped it up, right? That's the purpose of the law. Well, then you go, well, who can be saved? Right. Nobody can save yourself. And the whole purpose of the law is to make sin exceedingly sinful and for you to realize and give up the vain religious hope that you can ever live, obey rules, and be good enough that you could be acceptable to God by anything that you would do, even to the point of giving your own physical life. You cannot save yourself. Give it up. Stop doing it. Stop the madness. Stop the insanity. Stop the religion. Trust in Jesus. He's already paid it all. Amen? He's paid every bit of it. And so, you know, of course, we know how the story ends. You know who's without sin. And, and, I, and the reason I mention that, and I find it interesting that beginning with the oldest and then to the youngest, is because the older, the longer you live, the, the, really, for most part, most part, uh, you become more merciful, I think. I, I know I sure have. Now, when you're in your 20s, you want people to pay. God, God. I mean, they did wrong. It's black and white. I mean, let's just make them pay for their sin. That's just because you ain't lived long enough. And you ain't all that anyway at 20, but you'll learn. Because when you get 60, you'll look back and go, I've made a bunch of bad decisions. And so beginning with the oldest, <laughs> like, you know, okay, yeah, I remember. And you just get, you know, you get up on out of there. When the younger ones, they're hanging around like, man, we going to throw the rocks today? Come on, man. Let's throw. I came to throw some rocks, you know. Well, that's what the law is. You know, the, the law, if you want to see another video of this whole deal, the, the, you know, they've had about 4,000 years of law when Jesus came. And, and so here, so we got Lazarus, and he's dead, and he's in the, in the grave, right? And, 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 and he's stinking, they say, and he's decaying physically. Now, this is all picture. A lot of people miss this. They miss the imagery of this. But So the law has done its job. It's put him in the grave. It's killed him. The letter, oh, thank you. The letter killeth, 
but the Spirit gives life. So the law is to kill you, to kill your attempts. To, it actually says it's to shut your mouth, to close your boasting, to stop all boasting. Well, I've kept, no, nobody's ever kept the law, but one person, and his name's Jesus. And what he does, he kept it on our behalf, and then he credited your account as 100% keeping the law without failure. Isn't that amazing? So you did keep the law in totality. How? By trusting in the one that kept it, and that's Jesus Christ. And that got a credit to you. But see, so we got Lazarus in the tomb. But now the problem is now for Lazarus to live and really live, you got to roll ye the stone away. Jesus didn't do it. He said, you do it. Roll, roll the stone away. What did the stone represent? The law. You got to get that out of the way now. Now that you got them dead, in other words, you can't save them until they know they're drowning. Now, if you're in the middle of the ocean and you're out there treading water and a boat comes by, you know, and you go, hey, man, you want us to save you, man? You're, you're going to drown out here. No, I'm just swimming. No, you're not swimming. You're like 100 miles from shore. You're, you're not going to make it. You don't have the strength. You can't save yourself. Somebody's got to save you. And, but if you're dumb enough to think you're just on a swim, you're going to drown. You see what I'm saying? So you have to convince the person that you're lost. You're about to drown. You're, that's, what, that's what the law does. It shows you you cannot make it. You cannot live up to God's standard. What is God's standard? Perfection. What is God's standard? Holiness. What is God's standard? Perfect righteousness. Where do you get that from? From God. What God demands, he supplies. What God calls for, he supplies. It's all, he's always been that way. God will never ask you for something that he didn't give you. You understand what I'm saying? So whatever God demands, he supplies. And, and, and so God demands faith, he gives you faith. To every man, he's given the measure of faith. Now, it's required for you to walk by faith. Where would you get it from? God gifted it to you. Are you all with me today? So, so that's what the law does. And, and, and so, but you've got to understand that Romans 10 and 4, I always just remember this because I was a paramedic for 20 years and we talked on the radio a lot, right? And we used 10 codes. And 10 4 is like, you know, everybody says 10 4, and everybody knows what 10 4 is. Well, I always remember that. 10 4, good buddy. <laughs> you know, y'all old enough to remember that? 10 4, Romans 10 4 says this Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law to them that believe. He is the end of the law for what? For righteousness. To everyone who believes. Who believes in what? Who believes in him. So once you believe in Christ, the law has no bearing on you. Can't nobody shove that up your nose and threaten you with that or accuse you. Now listen, listen to me. If you do not know this, believer, Satan will still buffalo you and harass you with the law even after you've accepted Christ. And he will keep you feeling guilty and condemned always and that is a miserable way to live now this is how what we mainly do us humans this is what we do with our guilt you'll hear this a lot I want to give you three ways that we that we deal with our guilt number one we bury it bury it somebody will say we just need to bury that old life you need to bury that sin you need to bury that well you can bury it but the problem with all this kind of stuff and guilt in particular it's like a zombie it digs out at night how many's heard that? You know what you know what you do in Vegas stays in Vegas, not since the internet. <laughs> what you've done in Vegas or any place else is on the internet. It is global and it is permanent. It don't stay nowhere no more. 
Once it, once it arrives on the internet, for some reason, it stays on the internet. Your mugshot, they put you on the internet, it stays on the internet. Great, great, great grandchildren can pull that up if they want to, you know, 100 years from now and go, well, look at there, great, great granddaddy got, you know, locked up one time. I mean, it, it's, that's the society we live in. You used to could go to a restaurant and eat, and the restaurant, you know, get by with bad service. They can't do it anymore. You go on TripAdvisor, you go on Google, you, that's the sorriest meal I ever had. I would give them less than one star if I, if I could have. This place needs to be clear. I mean, you can just rail. Everybody is a critic. And maybe that's good. It's tightened up, folks, maybe. We went to eat last night as a family. I didn't finish it, but I was not going to give a good review where we ate. <laughs> it was horrible. It was terrible. Uh, you know, just ridiculous, the service. And, uh, but you can do that now. But you've got to understand, burying it, that doesn't do anything because it won't stay buried. And, and, how, and how they bury it specifically is minimize it. Minimize the sin. Eh, that's no big deal. Eh, it's not a big deal. Everybody does it. Really. And then if it's not minimizing it, then you rationalize it. Well, at least I didn't kill anybody. I'm not as bad as that guy. Think, think, remember this when you say rationalize. Rational lies. Every time you try to rationalize your problem, your sin, you're, you're actually tell, telling what you consider rational, but you're lying to yourself. Amen? That was worth the ride down here to get that. And then if you don't minimize or rationalize, then it, you compromise. Because, see, guilt is a violation of your standard or God's standard, so what you do if you're having guilt, you just lower the standard. <laughs> well, I don't see it as sin any longer. It's not, I used to thought it was sin, but nah, and it's not sin now. Why you, well, guilt's not a big deal. If it's not a big deal, why are you, why are you talking about it? Why is, why is that all you talk about? Why are you having to take pills for it? Why, why are you having to overcome? If it's not a big deal, sure, sure it's a big deal. Well, you just lower your standard. I remember seeing this sign years ago that said, uh, uh, sin, if, you sin, if you do the same sin twice, it won't feel like sin. Well, I'm sure the serial killer on about the 20th murder, you know, that would be easier than the first murder. Your boy, y'all quiet. Y'all was saying amen loud in this Virginia. Y'all better come on, help me. That's, you know, that's, that's really kind of true. You keep doing the same sin over and over. It's called hardening your heart. Ah, it's not a big deal. Uh the number two way we deal with our guilt is we blame others. So the, the, the first way is we bear it. Number two is we blame it. We blame others. Man, this goes back all the way to the garden. You remember that deal? So God comes in, deals with Adam. Adam, you know, have you eaten in the tree? I told you not to eat it. He said, listen here, God. <laughs> it was that woman that you gave me. Am I telling the truth? It's in the book. He said it was that woman you gave me. So really what he's blaming is God. He said, I, I mean, I had no choice to marry this woman. It's the only woman for me on the earth. I had to marry her. She's the only one you brought me. It ain't like I go, I could pick A, B, C, D. I had to marry her. And the woman that you brought me, she picked the fruit and she gave it to me and I ate it. It's her fault and, and indirectly it's really your fault. That's, that's, that's where the blame game started. And it goes all the way back to the garden. 
and I know I've told you this before, but scientists back this up. They say they believe that in the beginning the serpent walked upright. He walked upright. We believe that biblically because if he did not walk, if the serpent, when, when he was used you know, by Satan in the garden, if serpents did not walk upright, there would have been no curse for God to command him to the ground. Cursed are you to the earth, to the ground now. From now on, you're going to be on the ground. Dust is going to be. And so, we, you know, I, I thought about that a lot. I kind of wish snakes did walk upright. You could maybe see them better. <laughs> but then, Pastor Keith, I got to thinking, can you imagine like a six-foot moxon hiding behind a tree? <laughs> standing there and bite you right in the face when you walk through. I'm like, no, I'm glad they're on the ground now, man. At least you can only get me on my lower leg. You can't bite me in my face, you know. But so he goes to Adam. Yeah, that's the woman you gave me. Your fault. So then God's kind. He goes to the woman. Eve, what about it? What, you know, what, what do you say? She said, well, that serpent. It wasn't my fault. It's the devil made me do it. You <laughs> know, kind of deal, serpent. And then he goes to the serpent, and he says, serpent, what about, you know, and then he wasn't left with a leg to stand on, so he, he wasn't nothing he could do. <laughs> oh, come on, you know that's funny right there. <laughs> and, of course, he gets the curse, he bears the curse. Let me just say this, God never cursed man. God blessed man in the beginning, and he's never revoked the blessing. The ground was cursed. Now, some of you got a real weird mentality. You think going to work is a curse. Man, if it wasn't for Adam and Eve, we could still be naked in the garden, naming bugs and eating grapefruit. <laughs> no, brother, that ain't. The Bible says work. See, before sin entered, the Bible said Adam tended to the garden. He worked, and he kept it, and he was also to protect it. And work is a blessing, and I hope you see it that way. And I know probably anything, I've never done anything where I said, this is 100% perfect, I love every second of it. <laughs> Nobody has that, and it's just unrealistic. When I was a paramedic, man, for the most part, I loved every bit of it. But then there were days I didn't know how I was going to go back. You know, when I was the EMS chief, you know, there were a lot more days that it was tough because I'm dealing with politics and, and all kind of other things. Other than just banding, you know, putting band-aids on, but you know what I'm saying, dealing with with hurt people. I have to deal with politics and all that stuff that goes with it and budgets and all that. And so there's a lot of, you know, so I had more days that's not so fun. Um but you know, blaming is not gonna get it. The third one, how we deal with it is we beat ourselves up. Nobody can beat you up like you can. You hear me? nobody is as tough on you as you are on yourself. And God don't want that. That's a terrible way to live. Let me tell you something. This is a fact. Psychologists say that the one thing, the one thing that all addicted people have in common is guilt. You will not find an addicted person who is not suffering from some level, some degree of guilt. And why now are they suffering from guilt? Because there's something that they don't believe about their sin. They believe somehow, erroneously, that they can somehow fix it, you know. And so, he, you know, here you go with, the, with, with, with you know, I mean, guilt is an absolute killer. Um, it, 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 it's just, that's it's just the only way I know how to say it. It's just a killer. So, you know, it's like the other day I lost my temper, man, and, 
And, uh, you know, it was just for a moment, but uh, that was enough. And, and, you know, the damage was done by what I did, what I said. And then so later, you know, you just feel sick about it. You, you just say that, I feel sick about Because that's what guilt will do. It will make you feel sick. It will make you sick. And uh, I just feel sick about it. Uh, but, I, you know, I took steps to make amends. And, 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 uh, but listen, it's not going to remove that. There, there, you know, and, and, and it's like, well, man, I, I just wish that there was only something we could do about guilt if there was just a cure for guilt. Uh, well, there, there happens to be. And, and it's in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. Uh, actually, a lot of translations render it like this. The, the Bible talks about a, a guilty conscience. And here it says, let us draw near to God. So what's the cure for guilt? Drawing near to who? Not running from him. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And faith in what? Faith in the person. In him, listen to this, and having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's a New American Standard of, of, of uh, Hebrews 10 and 22. The, the New King James there actually doesn't use the word guilt. Um, and, and, and sometimes, I, I just want to say this to you, and I won't get into all the Greek and try to maybe bore you with all that, but there's a lot of translations of the Bibles of the Bible. And uh, so, so if you're reading a New King James Version, which I, I use most of the time uh, as far as preaching, the word guilt is only found in the New Testament one time. One time. Uh, if you're using a King James Version, the word guilt is in there six times. Now, this is no bashing of these translations. An Amplified Bible, the word guilt is used in the New Testament 45 times. Um, New International Version, 16 times. So why, why are you telling us that? Because I'm just trying to see how much guilt is in your diet, in your reading diet, how much that you're taking in. So if you're reading a New International Version, for example, if you just read that literally and just accept like this is, you know, you've got to realize you're reading the translation. They use uh, the term for flesh. They call it sin, uh, a sin conscience. In other words, that, in other words uh, uh, they will teach you that, that you have a sin, not sin conscience rather, but a sin nature. So there's a Greek word sarx, S-A-R-X, and it means flesh, carnality. Well, the New International Version translates that as uh, sin nature. So if you read that and take it literal, you'll come away from the New International Version saying, I have a sin nature, and that's why that's preached so profoundly in so many pulpits in America. Because many people use that translation because it's a seventh grade reading level book translation and it's very easy and very readable. And that's good. King James, 12th grade reading level. Makes it a little tougher. My point is this. you got to understand, you don't have a sin nature. And, 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 and guilt is not part of your diet any longer because Christ has become the guilt offering Isaiah said for us. He's become that for us and he has delivered us uh, from that if you just trust in him. So I want to tell you this. You, you have to settle this issue. It's so important that you settle the issue of forgiveness in your heart. And if you don't, listen to me, you, you're going to spend your life in pursuit of what God's already given you. Now, now listen to the Apostle Paul, and I didn't give you guys this, and I apologize. 
you probably can't do it that fast on the fly. I don't know. You may, be, you know, you're kind of superhuman there. But, um, but at, listen, this is after the resurrection, uh, and, he, uh, and he speaks of forgiveness of sins as something that's done. Now, listen to me. Most of the church sees forgiveness as something that God can do. God can do. The Bible teaches that forgiveness in the New Testament after the resurrection, after the resurrection. Why is it important after the resurrection? Because that's when the new covenant starts. The new covenant does not start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It doesn't start then. Because the new covenant is the last will and testament of Jesus, and the New Testament, the benefits do not go into force. The inheritance is not transferred until there has been death of the person. Now, is that right? So that's why the New Testament begins when? When Jesus comes out of that tomb, when he's resurrected. See, that, that's why the Bible says this. If any man be in, be in what? Now, notice it does not say if any man be in Jesus. And why do we have the sudden change in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul instead of using Jesus Christ? It, 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 there's a change most of the time to Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus the Lord. If any man be in Christ, why? Because God wants that resurrection power up front. Satan is not anti-Jesus because anti-Jesus won't hurt you. But he is the anti-Christ. Y'all ain't getting this here. This here is so good I'm about to take a lap. Anti-Christ is the spirit of Satan because everybody loves Jesus but it's just when he dies, buried, and resurrected and becomes Christ, that's what we got a problem with. Because now Christ is Christos, the anointed one, the Savior, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Healer, the God. That's what he's got a problem with. And that's what he is anti-against. He's anti-Christ. And so if you get the revelation that he's the Christ... See, when Jesus said, who do men say I am? Ah, some say you're Elijah, some Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. But he said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Christ, the Christos. You are the son of the living God. Boy, that's when Satan, that's got a problem now. This brother has got the revelation that this is the Christ. Many Christians have the revelation of Jesus, but they have yet to receive the revelation of Christ. And if you got that you are, you're, that Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is in that moment right then, not will be when he dies and goes to heaven, he is a new creation in Christ. If you understood that that's where your righteousness is, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. See, we need the revelation of Christ in our lives. And so I hope you'll read the New Testament now and just and every time you see Christ, you'll just high five yourself. Just or highlight it or whatever, whatever you got to do to, to get it. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's, it's more than Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. But Jesus became the Christ. He came as the Christos, the anointed one, the one mediator between man and God. Man, that's good stuff. Amen. And so Paul says in Acts 13 and 38 and 39, he says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, he's talking to Christians, that this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sin. That's what this, this man, capital man, Jesus, not, not will be, but the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believe is justified. That means made righteous from all things from which you could not be justified or made righteous by the law of Moses.
That is so powerful. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In him, who's him? Jesus. In him we have, not will have, we have redemption through his blood. What does that look like? The forgiveness of sins. And by the way, the word sins there is not verb. It is noun. It is a thing, an entity, according to the riches of his grace. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he has conveyed us unto the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood. What does that look like? The forgiveness of sin. And lastly, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2 and 12 says, I write to you little children, Christians. Why? Because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. They're already forgiven, he said. They're already forgiven. They are forgiven. They will not, he didn't say, notice, that they will be forgiven if you confess them one by one. And, and this is the same writer and it's in the same book that people try to go to one verse and try to beat that up and scare and bring guilt and condemnation on everybody. First John 1 and 9, and it says, you know, that if you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's saying to you right there in that one verse, he's clearly saying, I'm not talking to Christians, now I'm talking to unbelievers. He's talking to people that in the verse before that said, if you say you have never sinned, everybody say never sinned. I've never met a human that said they never sinned. In other words, I've never sinned in all of my life. I have never sinned. You won't meet anybody like that. But John ran into them, and they were called Gnostics. And they were people who denied sin even existed. They said sin does not exist, therefore we won't confess it, therefore it's not a problem, we, there's no such thing. John said you make God out to be a liar when you say that sin doesn't exist. And by the way, the, word, the use of sin in 1 John chapter 1 is all nouns, no verbs. The church still don't know that. The church thinks sin is something I did. I stole a piece of candy and stuck it in my pocket and didn't pay for it. I sinned. No, sin caused you to do that thing. Big difference. The reason you have all those actions is because of sin, the sin issue. You got to understand this, that you either have to believe that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world, or he didn't. And if he didn't, and so we, we got a mixed, garbled message here. So we, you have to decide that. Every believer has to come to that decision. When John pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world, was he successful? Did John believe he was going to take away the sin of the world? Did, did Jesus believe he was going to take away the sin of the world? Did he succeed in taking away the sin of the world? And if he did not succeed, he, he took away the sin of the world, but he didn't take it all away. Then I forgive you, but I haven't. But I still need to forgive you. I've cleansed you, but I still need to cleanse you some more. I forgive you, but I still need to forgive you some. More. See, you, that's a mixed message. You got to decide. You either are or you're not. And so forgiveness is not saying everybody's saved. And right here, people go, "Well, you must be a you know universalist. You believe everybody's going to heaven." No, I would love for everybody to go to heaven, but I I, I believe this: everybody is forgiven. You can ask anybody, do you believe in universal love? Do you believe that God so loved the world? Well, th that same Bible also says that, that Jesus Christ took away the sin of the world. Not the sin of the church, not the sin of the confessors, but the sin of the world. So does God love everybody? And, and so they go, yes, God loves them. I say, does God even love people that's never even been to church? Yeah. Does God love people who's never even called those names? Yes. Does God love them just as much as he loves you? Well, yes. It's kind of hard for him to swallow, but he does. 
There's nothing you can do to put yourself in a better position of God's love. God loves you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God demonstrated his love for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God reconciled us to himself. God was in Christ on the cross, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God reconciled. God did this. God didn't, no man come up with this and talked God into this. God did this. This was the initiator, God himself. He did this. And so you've you, 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 you got to see this. God loves you. Now what we're going to do right now is we're going to receive communion. And this is another demonstration and reminder of God's tremendous love for you. I want my uh, elders to come and those that are serving, whoever's that we've got designated to serve the communion this morning. It's been a while since we've done this, but I just felt such a thing in my heart this week to do it. And to, uh, I always love to come to the, to the Lord's table. But listen to me. You know, if we live, I don't even know if that's visible but on the other side, but I, I think on our table here, does it not? It says, in remembrance of me. Actually says that on our table. Most, and why? This is a communion table. In other words, this is, this is where that we are brought into a common union with the Lord. And, and uh, you know, and, and we don't ban anybody from receiving communion. But let, let me tell you something. One reason God wants us to do this today, and, and, any, and, and often. He said, as often as you do this, do this in what? Remembrance of me. In other words, this is God talking. God said, I want you to remember what it cost me to forgive you. I don't want you to ever forget that you're forgiven totally. And it, listen to me, guilt sufferers, if you will remember you're forgiven, the guilt will go away. Because you are, not, you, you are declared not guilty and you are declared righteous now by God for the sake of Christ and your faith in him. Amen? And, and you won't wrestle with the guilt. Because, see, if you don't deal with the guilt, then you turn it on yourself, and then you start doing these bad things to try to deal with the guilt and, and medicate it or whatever. And, and that's where people get addicted to stuff because they feel so guilty, and, and they just can't fix it themselves. You ever heard that, man, you know, you, 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 un, you, you know, you just you can't unscramble the egg, man. That was you can't unscramble the egg. You can't fix it. I'm gonna fix it. You you can't, man. That's a horrible feeling to do something that you wish you hadn't done and you wish you could undo, but you can't do it. And that's a heavy weight to be on anybody. And I get it, and we've all felt it. I don't want you to wrestle with that after today. There's no reason for you to, because God's made provision through His Son. And Jesus became the guilt offering for you. And he took upon you, on himself, your guilt, my guilt, our shame, our sin, our condemnation. He was condemned so you would never be. He was declared a sinner so you could be declared a saint. He was declared unholy and unworthy and unrighteous so you would receive the righteousness in God through him. Jesus took it all. And I want you to ever forget that God took away that, the prophet talks about the, the garment of ashes and and that heavy garment of despair and ashes and death. But you got, and a lot of people know that, yeah, he took that away. He took away my sin. But then he also clothed you with righteousness, gave you a robe of righteousness. And that's the part. It is not just subtraction of sin. It is the subtraction of sin and the addition of his righteousness, the addition of his eternal love and blessing and never leaving, never forsaking you. And, you, and, and don't forget that part. Now, God wants you to remember today, and I want to remember, and I want you to remember what it cost him to forgive you. And forgiveness is not 
enough in itself because every human out here on this planet, listen to me, is forgiven right now by God. He is not chasing them down with a ledger book of their sins. There are consequences to sin, and that's why the New Testament is filled with admonitions and warnings. Don't do it because it hurts the person that God loves. It hurts other people for you to use sin and do sin. And, and God's not saying, you know, don't do it because I won't forgive you. God's saying, I've already forgiven you. Don't do it because it hurts people, and it hurts you, and there's consequences for it, and I paid the price for it, so don't do stupid things. Don't do sin. Don't get involved with it. Don't hurt yourself. I love you, and don't hurt other people with it. That's what God's saying. But the people out here, they will never enjoy the benefit of that forgiveness until they put their, until they first believe that they, in fact, are forgiven, the ministry of reconciliation, until they put their faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're sitting here for. That's why we're on this street. That's why I'm standing up here. That's why we're broadcasting this on Facebook. We want you to know you're forgiven. You're loved by God. God's not angry with you. You, you made some bad decisions. You suffered for it, but it wasn't God whipping you. You're not paying for it. You don't have to live under that, you know, that impending doom. God's going to get me. It's just I don't know when it's going to hit. I'm going to turn the corner after a while. I'm going to, no, no. Jesus has already reaped all you've ever sowed. <laughs> you, he reaped everything you've ever sowed and, and yet to sow. Now, you can make some pretty poor choices from now on. and You suffer for it, but that's not God's plan for your life. God loves you and don't want you to do it. But you know what? If you do, you don't got to waller in it. Because the Bible says a righteous man will fall seven times. But if he believes and knows he's righteous, not by his actions, he'll get back up again. Man, I love that verse. A righteous man will fall seven times. I can't believe that a righteous man fell. Yeah, they'll fall. Because everybody's born again is righteous. And even though you're righteous, you fall. You know what? On the way to the fall, you was righteous. And when you fell, you was righteous. And while you was laying there, you was righteous. And when you got back up, you was righteous. And that position never changes with God. God's gifted that to you. It's the gift of righteousness. And listen, if your righteousness come and goes, then that's a paycheck. And it can't be grace. But the gift of righteousness, the Bible calls it. And it's a gift. That means you didn't earn it. And if it is a gift, that means it can't be taken from you and you can't unearn it. Sin can do a lot of stuff, man. It can hurt you. It can make you physically sick. It can hurt people that you love. But one thing it cannot do is it can un not undo the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his blood. It can't do that. So today, in these last moments, I want you to come, and I want you to come and receive communion, and then we're going to take it together as a church family. Okay? And so if you'll come, each section, you see you, this section comes here, this section comes here, I think you guys know. And if you don't know, just follow the person in front of you. Amen. Okay, come on and let's receive the, the uh, elements this morning of communion, and then we'll take it together as a church family, and then I'll dismiss you.
You know, a lot of times I, I stand up here, I've done this so long, and of course I get this view that you don't all get. John gets it back here. He's getting the same view I got now. Man, you guys are such a blessing. I love watching your faces just coming up. Because when we do communion, I kind of get to see you really up close. You know, you come up from wherever you're seated. and You're smiling. You're talking to one another on the way up or saying hi to, as you pass somebody. And it's just family. Any revelation we have a church other than primarily family, we, we've got a wrong revelation. And like all families in the natural no family's perfect. Mine isn't. Yours isn't. But this family has been made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've been declared perfect and righteous before God because Jesus is perfect and righteous. And God put us in Christ so he could treat us like Jesus. And that's an amazing good news gospel there. So, Father, we take this bread that symbolizes your broken body for us. and We receive it in Jesus' name. Lord, we take this cup that symbolizes your blood. You held up a cup in the New Testament at your last supper and said, this is my blood that was shed for the remission of the sins of many. We receive that blood today. Could we just stand here and just for like 15 seconds, 30 seconds, just thank him in our hearts and with our lips. Just, Lord, we thank you. We remember what it cost you to forgive us and to declare us righteous. We remember that today. We remember the price you paid for us, the value, the dignity and worth you have placed upon us. You have declared and called us sons of the living God, children of the Most High, a peculiar people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, children of your own. Thank you for that today, Lord. We bless and receive you. We receive Jesus in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. If you'll pass those to the outer aisles, somebody will pick those cups up and as you do that and as they come along to pick up the cups you're dismissed god bless you we love you